News. 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 New York City. The FAQ NYC podcast getting more and more interesting by the minute. <laughs> FAQ. Hi, welcome to FAQ NYC. I'm Harry Siegel. I'm Christina Grant. And we today have Katie Honan with us. Thanks for having me on. We're very excited. <laughs> I'm excited of the too. Wall Street Journal. Yes, please, every on first reference, please say it like that with the very. The Wall Street Journal. <laughs> <laughs> So that's a nice, smooth segue into um, into, into pornography. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So, so we we care about the children. Um, we are a good city, and uh, we don't want uh, filth. However, however, it now appears that the laws meant to protect the children and the churches from proximate filth, um, which go back to some guy Rudy Giuliani. Yeah, you I think may that was remember. His name. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> So, so there was a judge's ruling about what uh, sort of um, sex stores we can and can't have that actually goes back to zoning that precedes the internet. Yeah. Uh, will you fill us in? Yeah. So um, this week, a federal judge uh, basically granted a stay uh, in favor of plaintiffs, which are basically strip clubs and adult bookstore and video stores in Manhattan and other parts of the city. So that's like Proust, Dostoevsky, that sort of thing. You mentioned Proust, but he actually did quote Proust in his federal ruling. Basically, he's he's allowing the plaintiffs who've had these like decades-long fight against these zoning regulations that were put forth by the city in 1994 and then again in 2001 and kind of been fighting it ever since and the restrictive zoning that would limit where you can open an adult bookstore or video store. They cannot be within 500 feet of a school or a church. They cannot be within 500 feet of another adult bookstore or video store. So it was part of this sort of very long, since the 70s, efforts to clean up Times Square, pushed a lot of these clubs to Long Island City, Queens, and Sunset Park in Brooklyn. Um, But this has been such a long, in my opinion, really fascinating look at what the city can do to stop these things through zoning, through they had, you know, the Office of Special Enforcement started as the Office of Midtown Enforcement, which was meant just to clean up Times Square. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, and I think what these businesses are saying is that their free speech is limited through these restrictions. What the federal judge said was when they filed these lawsuits, New York was very different. And so was just culture. You know, back Mm -hmm. in 1994, you couldn't whip out your phone and <laughs> Google anything you want to look at, which right. you can do now. So I think, you know, you could argue that these businesses aren't doing as well because of zoning, but also because people's habits and the culture's changed. And, you know, this is pre-internet. You know, now you could be on the, I've seen it, people on the subway just watching any kind of weird porn or whatever they're into. Right. Um, and you mentioned bookstores and um, what's the other the one? Video stores, the video stores. The little booths but, they used to have. I think one of the articles I've read said that it's also the actual physical places where women dance yeah. and they serve food as well. So that's, I mean, I, I guess a, a restaurant-esque type place. Strip club. Yeah. I mean, it goes back to there is this <laughs> sort you of- say, <laughs> Strip club. Strip club. Uh, strip club. Cabarets, gentlemen's clubs. Right. Yeah, because there was like Satin Dolls was mentioned mm-hmm. and a few places that are pretty well known and- I, I might Flash argue. dancers and yeah. Rick's, Rick's Cabaret. And and this, in the 90s, they established this, like, what was known as a 60-40 rule, which uh-huh. is sort of people were like, God, why can you get a lunch buffet at the strip club, uh-huh. you know? And it was because 60% of your area, of, of, of the place you had in your gentleman's club or your cabaret, it had to do something that was not related to stripping, which is why there were restaurants and some of these stores sold other things that were not related right. to 
the, the sex industry. So it wasn't just triple X books or videos. It was, I mean, Harry, you probably, I, you said you had a nice memory of what some, what some of the other things that were sold to these stores. When I was dating the woman who was now my wife, who was brand new to New York, I was like, you got to check this place out. And I just want to start by saying I have a lot of videos from these places. Let me explain. Um, so, <laughs> I was so like, I don't know where out. this story is going and I'm on the edge of <laughs> yeah, my Yeah, on VHS, I guess. <laughs> on a nice date, um, we're in the village and I'm, I'm, you know, we're walking. It's lovely out of smoking. I'm like, you have to check this place out. And, and we go into, uh, I don't remember the name of it, like uh, Bob, Bob's Filth and uh, Sex Toys Emporium. <laughs> and I'm like, no, no, trust me, trust me. She's like, okay. <laughs> And uh, we go through and and they have all the videos. And again, sort of pre-internet. So the videos are very methodically organized into very particular sections mm-hmm. and things for the different things people want, you know. Um, and I'm like, no, 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 don't, don't, don't worry about it. And I take it to the other side. Right there, it's like, look at this. And it's like every great movie. So Five Corners, which is a now mostly forgotten movie with uh, Tom Robbins. Great cast. Wow. Um, set in the Bronx. Um, I won't say much about it right now, but it, it, it's really worth saying. Um, almost all the movies I saw for about 15 years of my life just came from porn stores because they would have fantastic movies and they just had to fill this part of the store up. And it wasn't where the customers were and the prices were extremely very fair. And before people were, had fully realized DVDs actually had no value. So there weren't discount stores everywhere and I mm-hmm. buy books there. And I just love those places. I go in and I chat with the guys like, you get anything new in? Um, and anyways – Start figuring so this it out. Was it was your like, local video store? So, no, this was in the village, actually, by by where Alex lives. So Sarah got Alex afterward and was like, Harry took me to the uh, to the porno store, but then we just got these good movies and we watched them. Is that normal? But I'm saying the porno store operated had, as a de facto kind of video the, the, store. The 60-40 rule meant they had to have other inventory. Uh, yeah. And gotcha. so they would have – like, like really dusty, good, really good yeah, movies, pieces. books in some places, like quality merchandise very fairly priced because they did not give a damn about mm-hmm. said merchandise. It was not actually part of their business. It was to sustain mm-hmm. the other part. So I, I felt like I'd crack the code. Yeah. Oh. And that, I mean, it says a lot about you can't find a video store in New York right. now anyway. So who's to say there's a market for an adult video store? I right. mean, Kim's Video and all those kind of – uh, secondhand movie shops, the places to get really rare movies, you can just Google them. Yeah. You know, and, and oh, this, I miss Kim's video. Yeah, I love that. All those stores, Allen's Alley, all those kind of great movie stores where you could find a movie that you couldn't find anywhere else. Now you can subscribe to a channel that will stream them all to right. you. So it's the same thing for, you know, uh, pornography and other triple uh, X videos. So tying that together slightly, in the early internet era, when before everything was online, but as a lot of stuff was getting online, you know, it wasn't evenly distributed. So not everything was commonly available. So when I was looking for rare jazz and hip-hop albums, I would go to Audio Galaxy, which is full of FTP places, which were file transfer protocol. Mm. And the deal with all these was to keep it from just being a leeching economy, you'd either have to give an album from someone's list to get access to three albums, you know, or mm. uh, 100 megabytes or 300 megabytes, or they would make you go to – Random porn places sign up by going like seven screens in and putting in credit card information that you could then cancel, but they would get a referral fee on and then showing them like what's in the top right of the screen when you get to the seventh screen. And then once you told them that, you could get like, you know, like like, like your Pete Rock B-sides, mm-hmm. um, uh, your Coltrane outtakes or whatever. But uh, th- this actually forced me from the world of culture into defrauding various porn sites to, uh, to gain access. So where, where do we stand now? <laughs> the way it stands now, the city um, 
with this ruling this week by the judge, you know, the city, because of other various lawsuits, they haven't enforced these rules since 2002 and mm-hmm. because there have been so many legal challenges to it. But I think bringing it to the federal case, uh, I spoke with a lawyer that they hope that there will be a trial. Uh, they're having another hearing October 31st to kind of, you know, with uh, looking at evidence and everything that they want to present. And it is, you know, to them, it's a free speech issue. Mm-hmm. It's this idea they they've challenged it in other cities as well and it's just been so long and it's been so drawn out in New York and it's almost like the city and society has changed since then right. while they're still trying to hold on to what they had before which you know the plaintiffs say is just the city limiting their free speech you know they cleaned up a lot they kind of got rid of those ne- neon signs and mm-hmm. it's not as obvious as when you look at the old photos of Times Square of what it used to look like um but yeah, that is where where we at where we are at now. And with a federal judge, they hope to you know I mean make it more on a federal level to, to really mm-hmm. uh, finalize it that way. Judge Pauly at this point hasn't ruled on the constitutionality, right? It's Mm-mm. just ruled on the enforcement. Exactly, and you know granted a stay, so it's sort of what the city has kind of not been doing since two thousand two. They haven't really been enforcing it because of all the other legal challenges. There've been simultaneous state suits and city suits just to fight it. Various. I think the New York Civil Liberties Union even got involved. They filed a suit, the various trip clubs and the places. Um, but I know through the years have always been various court rulings that have bounced it back and kind of ping-ponged um, the regulations. But the city, as they said, they kind of downplayed it because they haven't really enforced it since right. This sounds Bloomberg like the Elgin mayor. marbles of pornography. <laughs> it's like tied up in court cases yeah. and hidden away. Now, where, does the mayor have any thoughts on this? He didn't, you know, the law department sort of commented on behalf of the city and, again, downplayed it. And, you know, it's so associated with Mayor Rudy Giuliani mm-hmm. and even a little bit with Mayor Bloomberg. I don't even know if Mayor de Blasio has discussed. I mean, he really, what, he weighed in on the Desnudas uh, in, like, 2015 in Times Square. Um, but Very reluctantly, though, is because the tabloids <laughs> I, yeah. elevated the desnudas. All it takes is like two daily news covers and all of it, you know, the, the mayor will really um, make it a priority. But yeah, he hasn't really weighed in. I mean, maybe I'll ask him about it, you know, this week. But it it seems that, again, it's a... Tackle on horse carriages while you're at it. Yeah, right. There's a lot, <laughs> well, a lot of things that uh, are probably a bigger priority for Mayor de Blasio than um, like a Chelsea video store that might not be doing well commercially anyway because the customers aren't there. Right. So let's go from perverts to potters. Yeah. Well, it's life and death, right? This is all the things in between. (laughs) Right. (laughs) And coffee. Yes. (laughs) So can you, for for our listeners, just sort of give them a brief history of Hearts Island? Yeah. So Heart Island is an island – sort of at the south of the Bronx in Long Island Sound, near Pelham Bay, near City Island. And since the 1800s, it's operated as the city's potter's field, which is where the poor and the indigent, the people who can't otherwise afford burial, get sent. Um, Also, you know, stillborn babies go there. And I didn't find this out until recently, but even, you know, body parts from hospitals go there. And um, that's where they go. And in recent years, there's really been a push to make it more accessible to people. It's owned and operated by the Department of Correction. Uh, Rikers Island inmates are the ones who bury the bodies. The Department of Correction operates the ferry for people to go there. There is a database to see, 
you know, who's there. A lot of people's loved ones are there. It's homeless people. It's it's a lot of people buried there. Uh, in the beginning of the summer, there were lots of city council hearings because there's a few bills to, one, turn it over to the Parks Department for them to control it. You know, the, the issue for a lot of families is that the Department of Correction is the one who operates this. So, you know, they do like two visits a year. It's similar to visiting a jail, right? It's it's kind of that uh, it takes away what they're going there for. Um, another bill would be to like operate another ferry to it. Um, so there were some city council hearings in the Department of Corrections and the city's HRA, which sort of handles the administrative part of it, said that they were would look at other options for it. So earlier this month, they put out a request for interests to cemeteries around the metro area looking for possibly other places to bury the city's dead. Um, they estimate it'll be full in about eight to 10 years, although some activists say that that's, there's plenty of room. They can do more green burials. That's kind of not an issue. Now, why burials instead of cremation? Is that a... I don't know. I mean, the city does not offer cremation as an option, but they put that as a, as a possibility that that could be an option. Um, maybe they could, you know, get a contract with a, a, a crematorium uh-huh. or something like that. But it's always been burials and it's people in mass graves. And, you know, so I think for a lot of loved ones, it's it's not as comforting for some people, the process of, of how their loved one was buried. I know the city actually, ironically, my dad is involved. He's a veteran and him and some of his American Legion friends, they've actually been giving veterans, proper veterans burials for homeless vets, mostly who end up on Hart Island. So that's something that they've been doing, you know, just to mm-hmm. kind of reclaim people from this mass grave um to give, you know, it's sort of, that's like the, uh, uh, an act of mercy, right? <laughs> For any Christians, you know, as a lapsed Catholic like myself, that's sort of like right. the final yeah. act of respect, right? You know, of someone and making sure that they're buried properly and that there's a respectful place for them. Right. Especially, especially after someone has served their nation. Exactly. And especially for the people who are, you know, for a lot of people, it's, they find out their loved one is buried there after they haven't been in touch with them for mm-hmm. years. So it's really emotional for people and, I know the city has made steps really pushed by activists who've worked to improve for the loved ones and the people that are buried there, improve access, improve what it's like for the people there. So do you know if there had been any earlier projections that it had been filling up? Because it seemed to me reading this that like the eight to ten years in this request for other spaces just sort of appeared. I know activists had reached out to me after to say that the city had said that 20 years ago. You know, the city said 20 years ago they'd be full in 8 to 10 years, and they aren't. And some people think it's a beautiful place for a burial, and they just wish that there was more access. It was is it was easier to get to. So that might not be the issue. And who knows? I mean, it could be that the city doesn't find any proper places or the cemeteries who come through aren't really – you know, I'm sure for a lot of cemeteries, a lot of cemeteries actually are struggling. So I'm sure people would love to like get a mm-hmm. city contract to have guaranteed that they bury about 1,100 people a year. Um, but the the request that they put out was really interesting, just really looking at all different options, even green burials, which is like another kind of more environmentally friendly way. Is that where the, the coffin disintegrates? Or? Yes. Okay. So just to make, just and you make more space that way. Mm-hmm. That's a Jewish tradition, among other things, where you have a coffin that is made all of wood that has no screws or bolts or any other parts and so it's actually meant to deteriorate Mm -hmm. along with the uh with the body but obviously that and cremation and other things have have not been good for the uh for the burial business right Mm -hmm. such as it remains in new york and then in brooklyn and i don't know if this is different in queens um 
I, I think that, that that there's a paucity at the uh, at the most elite burial places that they're running out of space to, uh, yeah. to, mm-hmm. to put people in. In New York City, yeah, and they're running out of space. Um, in Queens, a uh, uh, fun fact: there's more dead people than living people in Queens. I think there's like oh, more wow. than you know. I, I think there's around three million people in cemeteries uh, in Queens, but you know they're running out of space, and it has been um, for. I spoke, you know, to a burial association, like a, a like it's like a trade group for burial associations across the country, and just because of the popularity of cremation, it's really been hurting mm. these cemeteries. Um, a lot of cemeteries, particularly upstate, uh, they've abandoned them, like their companies that run them, because they run out of money. So the state, like the um, the county and the town that they're in, they have to take <clears throat> control of them. So that also has been an issue. Well, I think it's also interesting because culturally there has been a shift. I think. Before a friend of mine wrote a dissertation about um, funeral homes in Brooklyn, um, but you know, for a very long time, there are a lot of sort of Black Americans, mm-hmm. Black ethnics who did not believe in cremation yeah. at all. Like that was just not something that was ever on the table. And I think now with younger generations, I think people are a little more open to it, right. which is changing the face of the funeral business as well. Yeah. Her but, her dissertation is fascinating because it's basically black people will go to white people to get for funeral services. Oh, that's but so white interesting. people don't go to black funeral homes. Yeah, I guess they don't. <laughs> it's one direction. <laughs> so they don't know. Yeah. Maybe I don't know why that. I'll have to read the dissertation. Yeah. I think, too, they're so expensive. And I think people, just the cost of it, when you think of how much money it costs for a funeral, for, you know, mm-hmm. a coffin and, and the burial and the lot and, and the tombstone, you know, and, and yeah. what you want on it, it can get very costly. Oh, yeah. How about poor Fred Wilson? Uh, what a shame. So soon after retiring. I hear his wife needed help with the funeral expenses. Oh. Oh, how many people are buried in backyards in New York, do we think? I know, I know regulations prohibit, but I've got to assume that there's a fair number in parks and so forth. That's a good, now I'm going to write that down. Maybe I can go foil for that. See how many people, how many t- bodies they find. When when people sell their homes? Yeah. <laughs> it's like, oh. Yeah, I always think it's like a, this year there was a case in Queens of someone, I guess, uh, had a repressed memory of like a body getting buried in their home and they like. Oh, he, he, fa- and he it was his mother, right? Yeah. His parents were, he thought his parents were divorced and his mom left the family. Something, his yeah. His father had killed his mother and put her in the backyard there, when he was like five or six. Yeah, and it was like, Remembered, I guess, uh-huh. went to therapy or something and figured it out. Whoa. Yeah. Yeah. It's like a Law and Order episode. It's awkward. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Transitioning from legs and eggs and midtown <laughs> pornography yeah. to burials. What about fairies? Yes. To get us to said various burials. Yes. Well, it we seems like everything's about- always popping off in Queens. Is it? Yeah. <laughs> well, for me, it is. I'm a very, yeah. I'm, um, so this week, the uh, Daily News got the demographic data from a survey done this summer by the EDC, who operates the New York City Ferry Service. Economic Development Corporation. <laughs> yes, which has, which has a new logo, too. I saw everything's, you know, they, they wanted to rebrand themselves. I, uh, I think the city had reported that. but um, And it confirmed what most people who've taken the ferry can see, which is that most of the riders, at least the surveyed riders, are wealthier and whiter than regular public transit users who use the buses and subways. And obviously the bus and subway system is different than the ferries. And this, I saw that the EDC was defending it and defending their riderships. And they, you know, the mayor, because this was his pet project, he introduced it. It's a transportation thing he can control because he cannot control the MTA. And he really 
build the fairies as because everything that the mayor does is through this um, lens of equity and, and everything that's done is, you know, to to end the tale of two cities. And right, because the $10 subsidy screams equity to me. Well, you know, he's defended <laughs> it by saying we are serving underserved communities. We are helping um, people who live in public housing get to work quicker. And I think the last time there was a criticism of it, um, there was an op-ed in the Daily News from the president of the Queensbridge Houses saying how useful the ferries are. And I think for – Especially for reporters, the controller had put out uh, an audit of how expensive they are. I think for reporters, it's you know, no one is saying let's get rid of the ferries completely. Um, I think there's probably concern about how cheap it is to ride, but how high the subsidy is. It's and then the uh, two seventy five a ride, yeah. to match the subway fare, exactly right. But they're not actually part of the the MTA system, which the mayor doesn't control. There's not a free transfer, and the subsidy is about ten dollars a ride. Right, and. I think it goes back to the mayor, you know, he has always said that these, just as he's framed the BQX, that these are for the poorest residents and this is to create equity. When in reality, I mean, realistically, right. it's most of the ferries end at Wall Street. Is anyone surprised that the right. riders are, are, are wealthy? You know, that's sort of the demographics. Even the, the ferry to the Rockaway Peninsula, which is segregate, you know, highly segregated, sort of split down the middle. The eastern end is predominantly black and poorer and the western end is predominantly white and wealthier. For someone, if you live in Far Rockaway, you're going to take the A train at Mott Avenue to Manhattan because it's going to be just make more sense uh -huh. than taking a bus about 35 minutes up to a ferry that then takes an hour to lower Manhattan. You know, for I think for some people, it's just not that practical. But right. I think it comes down to the mayor's framing of what this ferry system is. So basically on the side of the ferries, we should just say like transportation you can control. Right. <laughs> Maybe. Yeah. Right. Or it's a much pleasant uh, look. I mean, in the middle of the summer, I'd rather be on the top yeah. of a ferry with oh, like yeah. a rosé yeah. than on Ooh. the, you know, drinking in public. On the a train mushroom, with the Mike Bloomberg. Yeah. On the, on the, on the ferries you can drink in public. Oh, really? Yeah. yeah. Okay, so, but I had a question because when, when it first came out, I just, I thought it was just a, a mayoral, boondoggle for him to help his real estate friends and sort of do some pre-prospecting of particular neighborhoods. That's what I thought. Um, but my biggest concern, because we had Chris Pangelin on, on at one point, we had Rosa Goldenson on at another point talking about ferries and transportation. But the fact that there isn't a transfer made it such that if you are working class, why would you get on the ferry and pay two seventy five, and then once you get to the mainland, you still have to get on the subway and that's two seventy five. Yeah. I th I think I I could imagine that the ferries maybe when it comes to middle class commuters it has it's probably as appealing as like a express bus which is I think it's six dollars now it's mm -hmm. been a while since I used I used to take an express bus from Rockaway to Midtown um, and it's double the cost of a MTA ride but it's maybe more pleasant and direct so I think look if you live in Sunset Park and you work in Lower Manhattan that's great. You could take yeah. it for two seventy five, and it's quick, and it's a much more pleasant ride. But again, if you work in Midtown Manhattan, and you live in Brooklyn, or if you live in Astoria, it's makes more sense to take the subway. I think the it it attracts again, you know, maybe wealthier, more middle class or upper middle class residents, um, people who aren't crunched for time. You know, when I've taken it, it's not been on a daily basis. I live in like. Western Queens, so I live far from the Astoria Ferry. But, yeah, I guess the people who are taking it are people who work on Wall Street, people mm -hmm. who live close to a dock, people who don't mind then hopping on the subway for an additional fare.
And also people who don't have to punch in by explicitly. Exactly. Or, you know, I think if you get on like the first ferry out of Rockaway, you have people who have to be at their desk at a certain time, but their desks are in lower Manhattan. Um, You know, they have a sound of you ferry, which I think that was the most diverse of the ferry routes, Mm -hmm. according to the demographic data. But I guess it comes down to the framing of, of what these ferries are. And I think the de Blasio administration has framed them as something that they aren't. Right. They're now, and, and I think that's the question. I mean, do do people, do working class New Yorkers even know sort of the roots of these ferries? And do they really, have they have they been marketed to, to even know that these things exist and are viable transportation options for them? They've done a huge outreach and let okay. people know. But yeah, I guess it comes down to, pra- you know, I if you live in a certain, I don't know, the subway, it runs 24-7. We all know it can be challenging at times, but... For a lot more people, it's a lot more practical to get on a bus to a subway with a free transfer to get to work as opposed to, what, taking a bus to a ferry to then a subway to get to work. Mm -hmm. So if you go and look at signature transportation things like the BQX and the ferries, they all have things in common, right? They're not connected to the train system. Um, They have fairly low fares. Excluding Soundview, they tend to be located in areas by the water for obvious reasons with the ferry and where developers are hungry to find more. And what sort of, I think, added a lot of fuel to the fire, the story is that they've held off on putting out any of their own numbers up until now. So this is the third survey mm-hmm. they've done, and it's the first one. And uh, uh, props to the uh, Daily News, which I believe got here first. Mm-hmm. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yes. Clayton Gusa, the reporter, got that. Yeah. For, uh, for, for getting there. Um, but, you know, th- th- this is the first time we're seeing these numbers, and they're sort of damaging, right? Like, so it's 40% of all the riders are commuters. And you're talking about a system that over the course of a day for the full system is doing what some of the busier bus lines, which by the way, the MTA is now talking about cutting service on, although they deny it. They're just like, there'll be giant buses at vast intervals and that's the same, which it's not. Um, So it's only 40% of the the, uh, riders altogether are commuters. They say it's 74 during peak hours, that um, that, that about two-thirds of them, a little more than two-thirds of them are white, and that the median income is nearly $100,000. So that that, that is not reflective, I think, of, you know, who's riding the trains, for instance. Um, But it also raises this question of why you can't charge more, particularly during off hours. So, so that if people need to get to work, they need to get to a doctor during the day, it's one thing. But if you have a lot of tourists using this mm-hmm. on weekends or people okay. using it sort of as a uh, – as like a joyride, which I used to do with the Staten Island Ferry. Yeah. Yeah. I always – you know, when people come in to visit. But so why can't we why, why not extract peak? money fr- fr- from them? It seems like that would actually be helpful if, if this was an equity thing to say we're providing the service. You, you can get to and from work and, uh, you know, and, and we want to get money from people who aren't here. Well, well, they're in the city and it's available to us. Right. I mean, that's one of the suggestions that people have brought up in, in making it to, to reducing the subsidy. You look, in the summertime, the ferry to Rockaway and leaving Rockaway, it's beach. As Why would, you know, why would it be anything else? Um, especially at like 1 p.m. on a Saturday, you're not getting commuters. Um, but that's when it's been very popular. I think those are all suggestions that people have brought up of making it more expensive. The mayor has talked about his desire to eventually have it tied in with the metro card for a transfer but who knows when that could happen and the the hoops that would have to be jumped through in order to get it that way uh again it comes down to the framing they are ferries they are a alternate transportation option beloved by many many people but the numbers show they're not serving the people that 
the EDC and the de Blasio administration has insisted since it started that they would be serving. And that's where that disconnect is. So let's talk about pictures. Me. <laughs> so I went to your website on the World Wide Web. Yes. And I was blown away by your photographs. Thank you. And I wanted to ask you, because for someone who traffics in words, you know, I'm so honored to like hang out with all these smart journalists. <laughs> um, but you, you all are words. you all are sort of like comedians in the sense that you're definitely like a set, you know, right. and you have your own sort of language and your own norms and but I'm looking at you, I've read your stuff for years, and now I'm looking at you articulate yourself in such a clear and concise way through visual images. And I wanted to ask you essentially about that process. How does someone who makes a living writing and clearly thinks a lot and writes constantly, how do you make that shift? Because I'm thinking about the police funeral that I saw that was just filled with emotion and then clearly a, a, a Latin American dancer of some sort at like a, a festival, parade. you know, that's where that's from. Yeah. And then a father and son on the subway. I mean, it was so quintessential New York. I was like, but these are the stories she writes about. And somehow her writing has gone from her brain and her fingertips, like through her eyes <laughs> to like the exact representation in a photograph. Well, thank you. I feel very flattered. I did not expect such a, a it was, flattering. I mean, it was. Now I'm. I now I want to just gather all the journalists and send you all out for a day and sort of say, take pictures of New York and I don't know, articulate to me visually <laughs> what I read from you all all the time. And flipping that, why don't you speak now? About right. Your photographs. <laughs> well, no, I think it. It maybe its roots are in the journalism industry because my previous job at DNA Info, rest in peace. We had to do whatever we had to do it all, so it wasn't good for the photographers. You know, I mean, it was sort of the, the the change in the journalism landscape where you used to have photographers and someone who did videos, but you wrote and report. Now you kind of had to. They gave you a laptop and they gave you a camera and they gave you a little microphone and they said, "Great, you're gonna have to shoot and record and all that kind of stuff." I've always had an interest in. Photos, I admire many, many photographers and just art in general. And I think being forced to take pictures and then being around actual much better professional photographers, um, I think that's where that came from. I think a lot of journalists are also very talented artists or musicians, just other ways. You know, you mentioned the police funeral and because of DNA Info, um, I ended up covering a lot of those because – Once you cover one, you get used to it, how early it is, the rhythm of it. Not that they get any easier to cover or that they're sort of cookie cutter, but just the procedural aspect of it. And a lot of my, you know, good friends who are photographers, someone like Debbie Egan Chin, who was at the Daily News, who's I admire and respect a lot. She is a great photographer and just seeing her eye. And it's funny, I used to show up with my one camera body, you know, and I had like a 18 to 18, I forget what lens, you know, I had. And she'd be like, you got to get a second. I always joke with Debbie that whenever I would hang out with her, I'd end up spending more and more money like at b <laughs> because she'd be like, you got to get a second body. So then I get a second body. Oh, I need a long lens, like a 70 to whatever lens. And then, of uh-huh. course, she's like, have you seen these new mirrorless cameras? So then I'd end up buying another mirror. You know, so there's all these things. But now at the journal, we have many, many talented photographers. I'm not really one man banding it anymore. I actually have like all these cameras in my apartment that, I don't really use, but 
I I love photography. I I just think, especially in, I think ultimately for me, I love New York and every mm-hmm. I love everything about New York. And I'm such like, I'm like such a herb about New York. All I care about is New York. And it's like, I'm always like telling people, you know, most people don't want to hear about New York as much as I want to talk to them about it. We Before we run out of time, can we, uh, can we do a few just New York love things? Yeah. What's the best borough? Queens. <laughs> what part of Queens? Well, I grew up in Rockaway and now I live in Woodside, but the whole, the, the from the top to the bottom. I was born in Hollis. There you but go. I don't really remember it. <laughs> How long did you spend in Hollis? Until I was five. Yeah. My then dad lived in Philly. Hollis too. Moved to Philly. Go Eagles. So you're from Queen. You're a Queens. You're a Queens girl. Donald Trump and I. Yeah. Heel Spurs and Queens, baby. He is from the <laughs> other side of the Grand Central Parkway. My, my dad is also uh, was born in Hollis and is around the same age as Donald Trump, but he's always like, no, I'm from the other side of the Grand Central. You know, Donald yeah. Trump is from a very, Jamaica State's very, very wealthy. Outside of how the streets and avenues mm-hmm. make no damn sense, right? what is it that the rest of the city doesn't appreciate about Queens or doesn't understand about Queens? Well, I think Queens used to be like a punchline and now maybe through gentrification. So there's upsides and downsides to that as well. But there is, I think, more respect now for the borough. There is a lot more appreciation for it. You know, I think of just my trajectory working right in the workforce for about 15 years, like professionally. And I would tell people I lived in Queens and they'd be like, um, you guys have the airport and like the Mets or they'd right. <laughs> make a joke. And I wouldn't think it was very funny at all. But now you have people who don't just live in like Astoria. Now there's more of it. But I right. think what people don't get is how things are so and it's the same thing about all the other boroughs, too. I think people's understanding of Brooklyn is limited to a few neighborhoods. Manhattan, it's limited. Most people, which I also hate, most people dismiss the Bronx or Staten Island just outright, which is, I think it's a very dumb thing to do. And it shows, I don't know, I think it's all the boroughs are have their own uh, specialties. But in Queens, it really is neighborhood to neighborhood, super, super different. Mm-hmm. You food sound is like so a good. mom for yeah. the city. Yeah. <laughs> all the boroughs right, I, have special right. things, <laughs> all the one, neighborhoods. But one favorite child, of course, it's, no, but you know, I think that's such a you know, I think some people think to prove that they're a New Yorker, which I also – I hate when people try to be like, oh, I'm a native New Yorker. This is how you should be. You know, I, I kind of dislike that as well. Are you a Mets fan though? I am a Mets fan. Yes. Can I say one thing about native New Yorkers? Yeah. This is a place people are meant to come to. I'm also a yeah. native New Yorker. And and if you're born here and, and you have all this weird stuff you don't know is weird, like, oh, birds aren't supposed to sing in the middle of the night because, right. the, you know, the street Birds aren't also up. supposed to eat chicken wings off the street. Hey, Word. if they're there, why not? <laughs> yeah. but, but this is really a place meant for people to come to right. and to have some sense of themselves already and to reinvent themselves. And it's great to be from here. But, like, that's sort of a, a parochialism and at I this point it. just bogus, like, D's and D's, uh nostalgia – you know, it's just it's, – it's really – it's dishonest. It's not what the uh, what the city should be about in my view. And if you feel otherwise, you can stop listening right now. Yeah. I, I think people – when your only thing is that you're from New York and you kind of use it as your calling card when in reality there's so many different New York experiences yeah. and – Hello, immigration. Exactly. <laughs> Migration. <laughs> even beating even the most basic level of a – you know, I'm from Queens, right? I'm from about as far away from the city as you can imagine being from like the very, very bottom as I joke like in terms of like geography and then also like social – you know, I grew up in Rockaway <laughs> when it was like not cool to be in Rockaway, um, you know, before like tacos and everyone started surfing. So my experience is so different than someone who grew up in Manhattan. 
you know, I used to be like so intimidated by kids who like lived in like the city, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> most they mostly all like lived in side town, but I would be like, oh, right. <laughs> live in the city. And the same thing, someone who grew up and even in a borough to borough, someone who grew up in Riverdale, obviously for multiple reasons, going to have a different life experience than someone who grew up in uh, Morris Park or the South Bronx, the Soundview. Or, <laughs> yeah, it's completely different. Shout so, yeah, out that to is, Elliot Spitzer. You know, right. I'm from the Bronx. Right. Riverdale. That's when you go asterisk. Riverdale. Riverdale. Settle down. <laughs> well, that's why, I mean, I'm fascinated with all the real estate agents changing names of neighborhoods, you know, Oof. to sort of sell. So it's like, so check out this $2 million studio in Hamilton Heights. I was yeah. like, you mean Harlem? Right, <laughs> like- right. There's a lot of that and it's a real estate thing. And I love reading. I, I, every morning I go through my Trulia list. Not that I'm in the market to buy an apartment or a house, but I like to see what is what is being sold. What is the mm-hmm. thing? What is the thing that they're trying to used to sell this apartment for a lot of money mm-hmm. but yeah i just love new york so when whether it's photography or or writing and i you know again i will shout out dna info again because we had to do it all i used to do videos like whatever i thought was interesting you kind of had to do it i had learned editing in, in college and then an undergrad obviously but i'm far from a professional editor but you kind of have to and mm-hmm. a lot of journalists today you get thrown into it you know and if you have to send a photo for work after a while, you kind of want it to be good. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. you you know, you're whether it's even if it's an iPhone photo, you don't want to send in crappy photos anymore because that's what's illustrating your story. Right. So then you sort of see how other people do it, the framing, you know, and obviously equipment matters, although not everything, of course. But one sec, yeah. I would love to have a contest between all the New York journalists um, – journalists, not photojournalists. Typing just ones, yeah. Typing, I'm typing right now. I would like each of you to submit your favorite photo that you've taken of the city, and you all will judge one another. Wow, that's a good idea. I just, I want to see New York through journalists' eyes, considering I read I read you all every morning. Right. I speak to you all on the phone quite a bit. <laughs> Quick, do you have an hour to talk about this complex <laughs> right. topic? I'm always fascinated, though. There's so many journalists that I've had relationships with over the years. I've been talking to them on the phone for years. And then when I see them in person, you know, when I saw you the other day, it took me a second to register. Like, Who is this person? <laughs> yeah. I know the voice, but I don't know the face. <laughs> right. Or I only know people through the little circular Twitter photo where I'm, mm-hmm. I'm like, oh, yeah, that's that person. <laughs> well, Katie, this was fascinating. You are a New York treasure, oh, and we appreciate you. you. No, seriously, you guys are. Put that in your Twitter bio. A New York <laughs> treasure. Yeah. Yes, you are. Professor Greer says you are a New York treasure. <laughs> we so appreciate you coming on FAQ NYC. Katie, thank you. Thank you. Yay. F-A-Q. FAQ NYC is supported by a grant from Civil, a blockchain company aiming to reshape the business of news and by listeners like you. We recorded this week at the McSilver Institute, where we're headquartered. That's the McSilver Institute for Poverty Policy and Research at NYU. A special thank you goes out to Katie Honan of The Wall Street Journal. And a special thank you also to Adam Kamara, who set up the equipment at McSilver and is mixing the show this week. Remember, if you have to ask, tune into the FAQ for some answers. Review us on iTunes and reach us on social media to discuss it all. What'd you say, Harry? Strip club. Strip club. A strip club.